Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, as you're hugging, stay standing. Would you mind? Stay standing. Go ahead. Keep hugging. You can keep hugging. I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop all that. I just wanted you to stand up because we're going to start some of, start the service a little bit different today. In light of the fact that we're doing a message on worship out of uh, John chapter four, I thought we should start in Psalm 95. So stay standing and turn to Psalm 95. And a lot of churches do this. And uh, yet for us, this would be considered non-traditional where we do a responsive reading. And we're going to read the first seven verses of Psalm 95, and we're going, to, we're going to read it together. And we're going to alternate. I'm going to read verse 1 and the odd-numbered verses, and you're going to read verse 2 and the even-numbered verses, and we'll go down to verse 7. And so let's... Uh, and by the way, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, so if you've got the newer, amplified, living, annotated, whatever, it's going to just sound really weird. So we all want to be on the same page. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Your sheep, as the people of Your pasture, we render You thanksgiving and praise. And Father, we pray that you would raise us to a whole new level of understanding what worship is and what it is not. Change the baggage that we all bring. Every one of us comes with something that makes us who we are. And some of those are wonderful things and some of those need to be changed. Do your work in us individually and then do your work in us as your congregation. Lord, we know that there are many hundreds, thousands of congregations that have or are meeting around the world who are your people. Strengthen us as the body of Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. That is if you're done hugging. And turn to John chapter 4. There is no higher calling and there is no greater activity than worship than worship and the worship of God alone. No greater activity than the worship of God alone. There was a little boy who was being tucked in on a Sunday night. It was a classic moment. But he shocked his parents when the little boy bowed his head and said, Dear God, thank you for church today. We had such a great time, but boy, I wish you could have been there. Amen. Now, why would he say that? Well, there's a number of reasons a child might say it, but truth be told, some churches worship the culture. It's all about being culturally relevant. How can we 
adjust who we are so the culture likes who we are. There's the worship of the unbeliever. At least it would seem that some churches so worship the unbeliever, the non-worshipper, that the big deal is how many non-worshippers can we get in our building. In fact, they'll even find out what the unbeliever wants and then reorient their church and their worship service to cater to the non-worshipper. Here's a few examples. There was a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, who held on a Sunday a Who Wants to Be a Millionaire game at church. Two winners took home $1,000 each when they answered biblical questions. That would be worshiping the culture. A church in Texas concludes its Sunday services in time for Dallas Cowboy football games, which are shown on a big screen outside the church. Some of you guys are going, yeah. A pastor in Bryan, Texas, pays $10 to people who come to church on his bus. And perhaps the one that would beat them all if they were trying to do that would be a Baptist church in Hammond, Indiana, that boasted a record attendance when they sent out a fleet of 68 buses over a 60-mile radius to bring in people for what was called Heaven Sunday. Heaven Sunday included an organist without arms or legs, A karate expert, a former Hollywood stunt cowboy, an ex-football hero, a rodeo star, Santa Claus, and a ventriloquist. That was church. It was A.W. Tozer, it's, it's blazoned in my mind, said, Worship is the missing jewel of the evangelical church. The missing jewel of the evangelical church. And he wrote, It is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with Him. Bored with God? Yep, bored with God. We've got to do something else to get people to be attracted to come because people are bored with God. Now, the passage of John chapter 4 is interesting on a number of levels, and we have for the past two weeks, and now again today, look at this chapter. On one level, it it shows us about uh, spiritual refreshment. That was the first week we looked at John chapter 4. Here's a woman who needed living water, and Jesus presents himself as the one who can give that to her. The second level is about modeling. How do we, like Jesus, approach the unbeliever and lead that person to water? And the third level we look at today, we just read through the passage previously, but we look at the essence of true worship. The essence of true worship. And we're going to begin in a minute in verse 20. Now here's the setup. In the conversation that our Lord has with this woman from the well of Samaria... He shoots an arrow right into her heart when she, in a very cynical manner, says, I have no husband. And Jesus goes, bingo, you've had five of them, and you're not even bothering to get married to number six. You're just living with him. And she suddenly gets spiritual and says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she brings up the idea of worship. She asks a penetrating question. She doesn't deny her immorality, her failed relationships. She acknowledges that he's 
a prophet, that he reads secrets, that he knows her heart, her mind, her life. But he, in so doing, causes a response in this woman, and so she poses an issue. A penetrating question about worship that sets up the whole discussion of worship. Now, before we read verse 20 to 24, there's something about worship you need to know about the Bible as a whole. It is the dominant theme in Scripture. How do I know that? Because it appears over 400 times. That's a lot of times. Worship, worship, worship. 400 times from cover to cover. Now, John chapter 4 for the New Testament is vital. The word worship appears eight times in our text. It's the most significant passage on worship, perhaps, in the New Testament. Verse 20, the woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That was Mount Gerizim. They were standing right in front of it as they were at the well at Sychar. So our fathers, the Samaritan fathers, worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem, that's Mount Zion, that's where the temple stood, is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The first thing that emerges about worship in this text, the most obvious, is that worship can be confusing. This woman was confused about worship. What is the right place? Is it, uh, is it uh, Mount Gerizim? Is it Mount Zion? Now, she's confused for a couple of reasons. Number one, her own sinful past clouded her view of God, thus her view of worship. She's the cynical woman, and the conversation shifts when Jesus uncovers her past. And when she recognizes that she is talking to someone who knows everything and is a spokesperson for God, what she calls a prophet, in essence, what she is saying is, if you speak for God, sir, then would you please answer one question? Where does a person go to worship? What is the right place? She has longed for that. Now, her sin has obscured her view of life, of God, of worship, Because she's looking at everything in life through the lens of her own personal experience. We all do that. And hers was one of failed relationships. And and it could be that she just got so burned out on who's right and who's wrong and the whole religious argument of the Samaritans versus the Jews that maybe she's just sort of given up on the God thing altogether. Like, well, I, I don't even get this. What's the right place to worship? See, her own lifestyle has made worship confusing to her. I heard about a couple who drove into a service station. Now, I've got to explain that because we don't have those around anymore. But I wonder how many of you remember before the days of gas stations, service stations. When You remember that? It was a long time ago. You drive your car in, they would pump gas for you. 
And they would wash your window, sometimes every window. I used to do that job. I know. So this uh, couple pulls into a service station, and the guy's pumping his gas, their gas, and he starts washing the windshields. And um, the man inside, after the attendant washed the windshield, said, Wash it again. It's still dirty. So the attendant obliged, squirted a little more juice on there, wiped a bug spot away. The man put his neck out again. Wash it again. It's still dirty. Just then his wife reached over to her husband, took his glasses off, cleaned them, put them back on his head, and it was suddenly clean. The problem wasn't the windshield. It was his own vision, his own eyesight. Well, it's the same with sin and worship. Until our sin is dealt with, worship will always seem confusing and imperfect. That's one of the reasons she's confused. I think there's another reason that she is confused. And that is her own frame of reference, her own background. She was a Samaritan. Now, I, I told you a little bit about the Samaritans a couple weeks ago. I'm going to talk a little bit about it again and add a few things to it so you understand the passage. Way back before this, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army captured the northern kingdom of Israel. That was Samaria. Captured the land. Took the population out back to Assyria as slaves, but left in the land the very lowest of the people, the very poorest of the people, and then brought in other people from other lands that they had conquered into that area. So now you have not just Jewish people, but you have other peoples from other countries, a lot of different pagan peoples who married the Jewish people and brought their gods and goddesses and worship systems along with Judaism. So eventually you had not only an intermarriage and a mixed race, you had a mixed religion with elements of Judaism and elements of paganism all combined into one. That became Samaritan worship. Later on, when the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity to rebuild their temple down in Jerusalem, the Samaritans offered their help. But the Jews in Jerusalem said, you're not going to help us. You worship a lot of other gods and goddesses, and we're not going to mix the pure worship of God with that nonsense. So when that happened, the Samaritans got really mad and tried to stop the Jews from building their temple. How'd they do it? Number one, by sending a letter, Ezra chapter 4. Number two, by sending an army, Nehemiah chapter 4. In fact, listen to the Samaritans in the book of Nehemiah. I'll read it to you. As they mock the Jews down south building the temple. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish stones that are burned? That's from Nehemiah chapter 4. Now this blunt refusal to allow the Samaritans up north to help them rebuild their temple only exacerbated the animosity that was between these two groups. So you know what they did up north? They said, forget you and your stupid temple down south. We'll build our own temple. So they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim, the very place where Jesus is standing with the woman. So when she says, what's the right place, this mountain or Jerusalem, she was referring to a rival worship system. Okay, that temple stood on Mount Gerizim until about 129 B.C. when a guy named John Hyrcanus destroyed it. He was a Maccabean ruler. So they had no temple at this time, but 
they were still offering blood sacrifices every year on top of that mountain. Oh, by the way, they still do. To this very day, there's six to seven hundred Samaritans still alive, still once a year doing blood sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. Seven weeks ago, the latest high priest of the Samaritans died. It was in the newspapers over there, and they have searched for a new one. Okay, these Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. They did not accept the prophets, the Psalms, the writings, so they didn't have the full revelation of God. And here's my point. Their own religious background tainted their worship of the true God because they didn't have all the information, right? So this woman is confused because of not only her sinful activity personally, but her religious beliefs corporately. Now here's the point I want to make. Our culture and upbringing shaped our belief systems. You have come here today from a variety of backgrounds. And some are done with the struggle. Others of you perhaps are still struggling with that. Maybe you were raised in a home that was uh, loose and existential. And your parents said, it doesn't matter what you believe. There's so many belief systems, you know. They're all the same. Just choose one and be happy and be sincere and go your merry way. Others of you, however, were raised in religious homes. Some in strict religious homes. Some in very legalistic religious homes. And you bring that to the table. I've discovered something about tradition. It is so hard for some people to deal with their tradition. I've talked to people who are clear, logical thinkers until you talk about their religious traditions. And they, they go into a whole different mental state. They're not even able to deal with it rationally. It's all, I, I've always done it that way. Yeah, and if it's right, good, keep doing it. But what if it's wrong? Well, it can't be wrong because I've always done it that way. When I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I went through that civil war inside. I knew that I, I did the right thing. But I had all these traditions that were a part of my life. And so when I walked into another church, a Protestant church... I felt so guilty at first, so weird. I'm like looking around. Is a lightning going to strike me? Is this really bad? I mean, I'm growing in Christ and I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying, but the religious tradition of the past made worship so confusing. So that's the first thing to note. Here's the second thing to note from our passage. Though worship can be confusing, worship cannot be confined. And that woman is about to learn something. It can't be confined to a single place. It can't be confined to a single activity. Notice verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. You see what she was doing? She was confining worship to what? A place. What's the right place? Is it Mount Gerizim? Is it Mount Zion? What is the right place? And Jesus says, it's not about the place. It's about the person. You've made it about the place. It's not about a place. It's not where. 
It's whom you worship. Now, several years later, Stephen, in the book of Acts, will stand in front of the Jewish leaders and he will say this in Acts chapter 7. For the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all of these things? So Jesus says neither. It's not about the place. It's about the person. Here's the mistake we often make. We often make the error in thinking of God as being near or far spatially in terms of space, in terms of geography. You got to go to a place. God is in that place. I remember when we first moved from the Lakes Apartments, where we held our Thursday night Bible study, to our first Sunday morning real church meeting, which was the theater, Far North Cinema Theater. And uh, some people just couldn't hang with that. They just thought, I don't feel the Lord here. Because it was so cavernous. I mean, it sat 200 people. It was huge for us then. This little Bible study in a theater that sat 200 people. And people were saying, it's just not the same. Like the apartment. I met God in the apartment. Okay, get over the apartment. Now we're in the theater. You don't have to like the popcorn, but come for worship. But then we left the theater and we went to a couple other buildings and we came to this building. And again, I remember people saying to me, the Holy Spirit isn't here. He was there, but he's not here. I'm thinking, what is it, the metal building? He doesn't like metal buildings? Is is that the deal? Here's another scenario. You come to church, but on this particular week, you come just a little week, a little late, just a few minutes late than your normal time. And other people who didn't get the memo came a little early and took your seat. <laughs> so you walk up to your normal seat and you're thinking, how on earth could they do that? That's appalling. They took my, that's my seat. That's where God speaks to me. They got to get out of my seat. Next week, I'll make sure I get earlier so I can get my seat back. Now, I don't want to marginalize it. You can have a legitimate experience in a particular place. But once you start regarding the place more than the person, there's a problem. This is the whole thought behind the pilgrimage. People need to go to a place, a pilgrimage. And in that place, they're going to have a special experience because that's a special place. So over in Magigori, Yugoslavia, 10 million people have gone to that village because of a supposed apparition. And if they take a pilgrimage to the special place, they'll have a special experience. Every year, 2 million Muslims go to Mecca on what they call the Hajj for a special experience in a special place. In this state of New Mexico, on Good Friday, many people will take a trek up north to Sanctuario de Chimayo to get some special holy dirt that will transform their lives forever. That's the pilgrimage. I remember I used to think, if I could only go to Jerusalem and sit in the Garden of Gethsemane, something special would happen. Because I heard people that did that. They went there and it was overwhelming. And I wanted the overwhelming experience. So I saved up. I've been to Israel now 31. This will be the 32nd trip coming up. 
And I remember the first time I'm a young kid working on a farm in Israel. I got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and I heard this is the place. This is the place. So I sat on a rock in the Garden of Gethsemane and I waited. And I went, okay, God, go ahead. No, no, God, go ahead. Go ahead. Now, you, you, go ahead. You can do it now. God didn't happen. Didn't happen. Now, uh, some people have gone, and it has happened. For me, it didn't happen. So I fly back home. But one night, I'm in my apartment in Santa Ana, a real low, flea-bitten apartment. And I'm in, in my apartment, and I open my Bible, and I came across a passage that spoke to my heart so powerfully, and it was like an epiphanal moment. And I experienced the presence of God in a very powerful and unique manner. And I thought, isn't this odd? It didn't happen in Gethsemane. It happens in Santa Ana. So now I'm thinking, I didn't have to save up that money and take a trip to Israel. I could have saved my money and stayed in Santa Ana. Now... Please, if you're saving up your money and are going to go to Israel, we're going to have a meeting after third service today. Uh, don't be dissuaded by that. <laughs> Just know this. Jeremiah 23. God says, Am I a God who is only in one place? Ask the Lord. Am I not everywhere in all the heavens and the earth? Worship can't be confined to a place. Here's something else worship can't be confined to. A single experience. You know that when this woman said, which is the right place to worship, you know what she was thinking of in terms of worship? An activity of worship. You go to the temple, you bring your animal, you sacrifice it, you say some prayers, you sing a song, you do the liturgy. She can find worship to a single activity in a single place, much like some of us do. We have our worship service at our church, or we have worship seminars, or we have worship conferences, and we limit worship to an event rather than it being a lifestyle. You've got to agree that you can come to a worship service, your mind can be a million miles away, and you're not even close to worship. Charles Spurgeon stunned his congregation one Lord's Day when he said, I believe a very large majority of churchgoers are merely unthinking, slumbering worshipers of an unknown God. Think of it this way. If I come and I sing and I raise my hands and I clap my hands, but if I don't go out and my life is not under the submission of the Lord Jesus Christ, am I really a worshiper? Am I what Jesus called a true worshiper? No, it just means I can act really well and play the part and on cue say the words really well. Now, true worship has to be more than an event. It has to affect a life. There has to be life change. When thieves stop stealing and when adulterers stop the affair and when cheaters stop cheating because God changed their lives, that's true worship. George Smith said something profound. I love it. He said, there are not four Gospels. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people will never read the first four. That's true, isn't it? That's really good, isn't it? I mean, a lot of people won't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but they'll read you. They'll read your life because you read those Gospels. 
So worship can be confusing, but worship can't be confined to a place or an activity. Here's the third truth the passage reveals. Worship must be candid. That is truthful, honest, wholehearted. And Jesus put it this way. The hour is coming and now is, verse 23, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, here it is, in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Does that mean the Holy Spirit? It's not what it's referring to. I know that because in Greek, it lacks the article. The article would be in Greek, ha. But the article is missing. The is missing. And it simply says, en pneumati, in spirit. Not in the spirit formal, just in spirit. And it's not referring to the Holy Spirit. It's referring to the human spirit. The human spirit. It talks about from, the idea is from the depth of your heart, from the core of your being, from who you really are, in essence, worshiping God. You see, man is a trinity, body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. You can worship with your body, hands up, eyes up, mouth singing. You can worship with your soul. You're all emotional and involved and it's exciting. But if in the core of your being, your spirit is not worshiping, then you are not worshiping. Jesus referred to this when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So true worship must come from the depth of our inner being. It is not external. It is more internal. I'm going to read to you a little paragraph by an English Puritan named Stephen Charnock who said, Without the heart, it is not worship. It is a stage play, an actor acting a part without being that person really, a hypocrite. We may truly be said to worship God even though we lack perfection, but we cannot be said to worship Him if we lack sincerity. You know, God didn't care about your voices. He cares about your heart. That's why He said, make a joyful noise. That covers all the bases. All the bases. You can go, and God will go, love that if it's from the heart. Love that. More of that. Make a joyful noise. It's not about how we articulate things. It's about the temperature of our heart. Now, wouldn't you agree? It's possible to worship the right God in the right manner, but with the wrong attitude. And then we're not worshiping in spirit. Right God, right manner, wrong attitude. I want to show you something. Um, you have your Bibles. Turn back to Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is, just go to Matthew, first gospel, turn left, one block. It's the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi, God is um, rebuking religious formalism. When they made it all about the externals, not the heart. And he's rebuking not the people, but the priests, the pastors, the worship leaders. Verse 6 of chapter 1, God says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts? To you priests who despise my name. Verse 7, You have offered defiled food on my altar, but you say, In what way have we defiled you? By saying the temple or the table of the Lord is contemptible. 
When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? They were plopping sacrifices on the altar. They didn't care about what quality. It's like, whatever, we've done this last week. We'll do it this week and next week here, whatever. Look what God says. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts, verse 12? But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. But you also say, oh, what a weariness. Modern translation, what a drag, what a pain. Oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it. In Hebrew, it's you puff at it. They do this. That's the idea of sneering at it. Worship. Yeah, whatever. To them, worship was a pain. It was a drag. And so I can sing and I can go through the motions, but if my heart isn't in it, that doesn't fulfill what Jesus said in spirit. Worship must be candid. Here's the fourth truth that comes out of this section on worship in John 4. Worship must be not only candid, but credible. Credible. It needs a solid foundation, well-grounded in the truth. That's why Jesus balances it out by saying, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, verse 24. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean to worship Him in truth? Simple. It means your worship must be based, my worship must be based on the truth that God has revealed about Himself right here in the Word of God. You see, sincerity is not enough. Being earnest is not enough. You must be tethered to the truth. The most sincere, heartfelt worship without scriptural truth is not worship at all. And yet I always hear, even Christians say, Oh, but he's so sincere and so earnest and means so well. But if worship is not tethered to God's truth, it is not true worship. That's what Jesus means in verse 22. He says to the woman, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Remember what I said? The Samaritans only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had a very limited revelation and knowledge of God. And so what Jesus is saying is we have the divine revelation. You don't. We have been and are the repository of divine truth. You are not. We worship the true God in the true manner. We know the truth about the true God. Worship in spirit and in truth. Every failure in worship can be traced back to wrong thoughts about God. That's why theology is so important. It's not, well, you know, just whatever you believe, just pick something and be happy and be sincere. That's not, that's not based on truth. This is why I'm committed to Bible exposition. Just in case you're wondering, how come every time I go to that Calvary church, they've got to open the Bible and have a long Bible study? Can't we just sing for an hour? And just move back and forth and go, ah, and feel real. You could, we could, and it might feel really good, but it might not necessarily be true worship. Don't you understand 
that we always need our thinking realigned and readjusted every week, a couple times a week, according to truth, because we live in a world that doesn't give us the truth. So we get reoriented. And our worship is balanced. It's spirited. It's from the heart. It's sincere. It's heartfelt. But it's tethered on God's holy word. This, by the way, is why the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, when um, churches in mass converted to the Reformation, they tore the altars out and put a pulpit in the front with a Bible on it to say the word of God is where we will take all of our cues from. Here's the fifth and final truth that this passage reveals. Worship will be consequential. Worship will be consequential. In other words, it's a consequence or a result of coming into relation with God. You will become, in Jesus' words, a true worshiper. That's just a synonym for a believer, a Christian, a true worshiper. Notice that Jesus said in verse 23, this is a great part. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Here it is. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. This is what God really wants. This is what God really wants. God really wants and is seeking for worshipers. And this helps answer the question that rises in verse 4. It said he needed to go through Samaria. You go, why does he need to go through Samaria? To get a hold of a lost woman and turn her into what? A worshiper. A worshiper. Here's the really big truth about worship. It's not that you're seeking God. It's that God is seeking you. He is seeking to find true worshipers. So once we who are lost have been found, once we who have been blind see and come to him, we're transformed into true worshipers. That's what God wants. Jesus said, the son has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And once those who are lost are found, he turns them into worshipers. That's why God sent Christ. And that's why we're redeemed. You know why you're redeemed? You know why you're saved? It's not to make you happy. It's not. It's not? No. The consequence of being a true worshiper will be the happiness and the joy that comes from deeper things than circumstances. But he did not save you or I to make us happy. Nor did he save and redeem us just to keep us out of eternal punishment. He saved us for his glory, to give him glory, to worship him. So that means to the extent that we worship, we are fulfilling the purpose for our existence. So to sum it up, it's not about the place, it's about a person. It's not about where, it's about whom. It's not about externals, it's about the internals. And it's not about feeling, it is about spirit and truth. And that's transforming. James Michener wrote a famous book called The Source. Some of you may have seen that book. Uh, in that book, he tells of a man by the name of Ur-Baal, or Ur-Baal, who lived in 2200 B.C. and was a farmer. Uh, Ur-Baal worshipped two gods, says Michener, the god of death and the goddess of fertility. It was common to do in that era. Um, as he was out plowing his fields one day, one of the priests of the temples came by and said, you must sacrifice your son if you want your crops to grow. 
That was also common practice. So on the appointed day, he brought his little boy and his wife and drug them to the temple and offered his son as the priest plunged a knife and killed his boy and engulfed his son in flames to appease the gods and give them good crops. Then the priest announced to him and to the other men who had also brought their children for sacrifice, one of you will be chosen to spend the next week with the new temple prostitute, which was also a common way to worship the goddess of fertility. Or Baal's wife looked at her husband's face and was stunned when she saw an intense desire come over him like she had never seen before. And then the priest called his name, Ur Baal. And he almost lunged forward toward that prostitute to spend a week with her in that temple. So, Michener writes, and picture the scene. The woman leaves the temple alone. Not with her son. Her son's been killed. Not with her husband. He's with the prostitute. And she says, if he had different gods, he would have been a different man. What a profound truth that is. You become like the God you worship. If your God is false, you become false. If your God is true and living, you become truthful and full of life. If he would have had different gods, he would have been a different man. God is looking for worshipers. And when he finds them, they become different people. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ that transforms lives and has been doing it for 2,000 years ever since Jesus got up from the dead and proved that everything he said was true. Heavenly Father, this woman at Samaria was taught by the Lord himself about true worship. And they reveal to us today that you are looking for, you are seeking after true worshipers. Thank you for clearing up the confusion. Thank you for showing us that worship can't be confined to a place or an activity. It involves a changed life. It must be candid in that it is in spirit. It must be credible in that it is rooted and grounded in objective biblical truth. And when those of us that you have been seeking are found, we, we become true worshipers. Father, I pray that you would, in your search, find among us today true worshipers. I pray that this message would not last for a few lingering moments, but would so transform our lives that our families, our business associates, our neighbors would see this man, this woman has been worshiping the true and living God. I pray for those who may not know you this morning. I pray they come into a relationship with you and enjoy the richness of living water. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.